Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson, and my conversation this week is with Anthony Giardina, whose new play, Dan Cody's Yacht, takes on the provocative subjects of income inequality and educational opportunity. It opens at Manhattan Theatre Club Stage 1 on June 6. Hello, Anthony Giardina. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We usually start these conversations by telling our listeners a little uh, about the play. So would you tell them what Dan Cody's Yacht is about? More difficult question than it seems because it's got such a complicated setup. This play is about, or rather I should say, it is set in a school, or partly set in a school, where there is a referendum going on to join, and I'm talking about a public high school, Mm -hmm. to join two very diverse, different school systems. One town, very wealthy, very ambitious for his kids. The other town across the river, a much more sort of downscale factory town. This is based on two actual towns where this happened in eastern Massachusetts. So there's a referendum going on, and a man who is a private equity guy, very wealthy guy, comes in to see his son's high school English teacher. She has failed the son uh, for a paper on the great Gatsby, and she is one of the chief proponents of this merger. Uh, she is from the poor town. He is from the rich town. I imagine you're already confused, but it's very clear in the play. <laughs> um, and he makes a proposal to her, essentially, in the first scene, why try and do something that's really not a good idea anymore in America to try to pretend we can melt, to try to pretend we can be the country we thought we were once upon a time. Let me just make you some money. And from that proposal, the play unfolds. I hope that's not too confusing, but it is It is a complex setup. It isn't when you see it on, on, on stage. Um you mentioned that something similar to this uh, happened in, in Massachusetts, and so I was wondering, was that the genesis of the play? It really was. There were two things that were the genesis of the play, and one was my discovering this actual attempt to join. It was Acton, Massachusetts, and Maynard, Massachusetts. This happened in the 90s, but I only found out about it uh, about five or six years ago, and I thought... I was looking for a story mm-hmm. that, that for me spoke to, it's now the great cliche, but I'm going to use it anyway, the, the great financial divide in this country. Um, and when I heard about that, I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then simultaneously, I read about Andrew Fastow, who was one of the chief villains in the Enron oh, scandal. Oh, yes trying to bribe his son's teacher. <laughs> I thought there was something just so wildly bold about that to me, and almost theatrical, that when the, you know those two ideas came together, I began to conceive of how this play might work. Is because that I certainly never wanted to write just an issue play. I wanted to write about 
bold characters. Anyway, go ahead. I, no, I was going to say, is that the way that you typically approach putting together a play? You, there's a subject that sort of grabs your attention, and then you sort of look around for stories that would help inform it? Or was this unusual? In the last two plays, my last play, City of Conversation, which was done here in New York four years ago, it was a very similar thing. I, I had read an essay by Sidney Blumenthal in The New Yorker, mm-hmm. and this is 20 years ago, about uh, what was then, you know, only beginning to become a concern in Washington, D.C., that is the division between Republicans and Democrats not talking to one another. And he was writing about the old world of the uh, the hostess, the Washington hostess who would bring together an influential Republican, an influential Democrat. They would have dinner. They would work it out behind the scenes. So that was the issue I wanted. But until you can get the character, the, the actual person you want to put on stage, and really beyond that, the voice, it, it can't become a play. So that's, yeah, that is how it's worked recently for me. It hasn't always. These issues of, of division and particularly class divisions seems to be a topic that grabs you. You seem to have written several novels um, about uh, about this as well. Yeah, it really is, I think, the great American theme right now. And it's hard for me to conceive of works right now in my life that don't address it somehow. Because, you know, certainly there have always been great American literature, you know, plays and novels, which which deal with almost entirely personal subject matter. But uh, when you are in a time that kind of demands that you look beyond the personal, and I guess I always go back to The Great Gatsby, which is, you know, for me, the, the a kind of bedrock achievement in American literature in terms of how he was able to write something so richly out of the social context of his time, how he was able to find a metaphor that was just so gorgeous and still speaks to us, you know, almost a century later. Is that why the uh, your title, uh, Dan Cody's Yacht, um, is an allusion to an incident in Gatsby? Yeah, I guess I was just drawn to the great Gatsby. Uh, I've always been drawn to the great Gatsby, but particularly here in terms of I'm not the first, um, certainly, to have made the analogy of the uh, 1920s to now in terms of how you know how widely divided we are and how you know the, the conspicuous consumption um, is it, so divine defines so much of uh, American life right now. But yeah, I just thought there was a metaphor in that book for complicated and perhaps corrupted opportunity in the way Gatsby is presented as initially uh, getting his education from this western, this mysterious western millionaire, Dan Cody, whose yacht he just rose out to one day and offers himself. And, and for me, the metaphor of the play is lies in that because an offer is made, an opportunity is presented to, you know, just a, a very good um straight shooting, you know, basically liberal, hopeful woman, a teacher in a in a school system. But but the opportunity is not clean. It is not pure. 
it requires her to do something that she's uncomfortable with. And when you find yourself with that opportunity, what do you do? Well, one of the things that really strikes me about your plays, uh, uh, at least the two I've seen, City of Conversation and this one, is that you make a point of presenting arguments on both sides. And I was just wondering, why is that important to you? The uh, equity guy is making this offer, but he isn't a total villain. In City of Conversations, there were conservatives who were disappointing uh, your main character who was one of these hostesses but leaned more liberal and yet you present arguments for both sides. Yeah and I guess that for me is the fun of writing and, and the fun of being in that place as a writer where there is absolutely no you know requirement of uh, psychically for me to invest myself in any one character. I like to play the middle. By what I mean, it's just as enjoyable and as freeing to write in a voice that is maybe politically not my own, but which I can I can appreciate. I mean, mm-hmm. Kevin in uh, Dan Cody's Yacht, who some people think is the devil himself and, and certainly presents arguments for um, the virtues of corruption, um, for you know how to how to how to keep a poor town from getting an opportunity. In a strange way, he was one of the easiest characters I ever had to write. I ever found the experience of writing because you know when you let yourself go into that psyche, you find out you know I I am that guy in a certain way, or at least part of me is that guy. Just, you know, let him speak and see where he takes you. He's a really interesting character because you gave him some attributes that I I wanted to just follow up on. He's a self-made guy. He's gay. And he has this fondness for jazz. Where did all that come from? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, (laughs) those are just things that... um, those are just things that seem to me when you write things just come up and the character without your having to spend too much time thinking beforehand oh maybe I should make him a jazz lover maybe I should you know do this or do that the character just starts to speak and there it is there it is and it just seems right of course he's a Dexter Gordon fan of course he's a gay single father I mean that it was just uh, for me to use another cliche, a no-brainer. That was Kevin. <laughs> Kevin announced himself as I was writing it. I wondered if he was gay to sort of tilt the narrative away from will these two people fall in love and solve their problems that way. Well, that was that was certainly in my mind as I be- began it. I said I do not want to write a romantic comedy about these two characters. I want their relationship to exist on another plane and I, I certainly don't want the audience to be waiting for the kiss. Right. So that was that was very much in my mind. But then the minute he announces in the first scene I'm gay, it was like, well of course. Of course. And that that became the character became for me 
um, he was freed up in some ways, and, and he became more fun to write. And so it's never, at least if, it, if you do it right, it's never just a um, decision you make that's, you know, an intellectual decision. If it doesn't kind of take off for you and begin to make sense, and oftentimes in, in rehearsal, we would ask the question, gee, you know, uh, you know, the writer has made this guy gay, but he doesn't really address his gayness in the play. And every time I tried to do that, it was like, you know, we had, we had um, you know, the stage management staff and, you know, others in the, in the room um, were, were gay men. And every time I tried to do that, they would turn to me and say, you know, you don't have to do that. Right. Yeah. It's not like gay it was, people. Which was interesting. Are, it's not like gay people are walking around all the time saying, "Oh, I'm gay. Let me act gay." I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> They're just being themselves, and that's how he came exactly. across. Exactly. So, so that was freeing too to just say, "No, no, no, no." He, he's, he's made a statement about himself, and now he doesn't have to talk about it anymore. Um, I was talking uh, to your director, uh, Doug Hughes. And he told me that there were some significant changes in the play as you, uh, the two of you developed it uh, over the years. And one of them that he talked about was direct address to the audience. And I was interested in why you started there and why you changed. Yeah, originally uh, when I wrote the play, there was the first scene as it exists right now. And then the lights went down on that scene and Kevin stepped forward and began addressing the audience. And it was fun and it was clever and he was, I, I had the idea that I wanted him to play games with the audience, to almost act like a magician. Mm-hmm. You know, look what I just did and mm-hmm. you don't know what I just did. And, you know, Doug and I have a very good rapport based on 36 years of working together and he suggested that that was maybe not the best idea in the world because it made the play Kevin's play. And ultimately, it's, the play is not Kevin's play. Mm-hmm. He is not the, the ringmaster. It, is, it should belong to both of them. And, and I found as I revised that I could take so much of what I had put into direct address and just have it manifest in scenes. Kevin, I think, is as mysterious in just by existing in scenes as he... I was attempting to make him by having him be the MC. You mentioned, and Doug Hughes mentioned, that the two of you have worked together frequently. And I was wondering, what is it about him that makes you want to continue working with him? You know, there's a very simple, basic thing. We just get each other profoundly. So when we talk about something, it is not usually you know, a problem in the play or, you know, a choice to make in the play. It is not usually this arduous feeling each other out. Do I trust this person? Do I trust this person's intellect? Do I trust this person's instinct? We totally, totally, totally trust. And so, which is not to say we don't fight sometimes, we don't disagree sometimes, but it comes out of an understanding of where each of us is coming from and and an ultimate, I think, agreement as to what we want the work to be. There's never a you know, a separation and and that's just it just makes it so much uh, 
it's more it's pleasurable, but it's also just so much more efficient to not have to you know to not have to play games about trust and understanding and you know we, it's just there we just that's where we start I was also wondering you have a successful career as a novelist what brings you back to the stage what makes you continue to write plays it's funny there's there's times when I have a desire to just sit at a desk and be writing a novel and of course that's a you know years-long process where you're only with yourself uh, but then there are times and 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 it really is idea driven because if I have an idea there's never a period where I say oh is this a novel or is this a play I always know it's one or the other it's when it appears it either appears with characters on the stage or it appears with an image that that kind of suggests or demands prose so, you know, I, I, I just have never felt like I had to make a choice, one or the other. And I've always kind of admired, all my writing life, people like, um, you know, Arthur Schnitzler or David Story, people who really did both and did both beautifully. Uh, and I always wondered why more writers didn't do both. Are the muscles very different in terms of the writing? Is that perhaps why? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's complicated reasons that I can't understand because I'm not that kind of writer. But yes, they are very, very different muscles. And you have to have a feeling for the theater if you, you know, if you are a prose writer who has no real instinct or understanding of how a play works, then yeah, then yeah, it's, it's, then I can understand that would be difficult. But, but for me, I guess maybe because I started out as an actor, and went from there to playwriting and then from there to prose writing, those muscles feel always kind of, I guess, to extend the metaphor, <laughs> limber. They always feel like this. My final question is, what do you want people walking out thinking? What do you want them to leave this play with? You know, you're going to perhaps laugh. Okay. And I don't know how old you are, and this reference may not register for you at all. But 50 years ago, there was a pop song called Ode to Billy Joe by hmm. Bobby Gentry. Does that resonate with you at does. all? It does. <laughs> so you, you will recall that it is, a, it is a song in which the narrator, singing narrator, learns that her boyfriend, uh, perhaps boyfriend, it's never entirely clear, hmm has jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge, and a week before, they were seen throwing something off, always mysterious. For 50 years, we have never been allowed to know what it was that they threw off the Tallahatchie Bridge. I use that song when I teach writing. Because, and this is a long way of answering your question, because I love works in which you are left with a question. And for me, that's what I want Dan Cody, uh, Dan Cody's yacht, to, to leave the audience with. I don't want to tie it up. I don't want, and for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen the play, I don't want to do any spoilers, but I don't want you to know what's going to happen or, or give some triumphant ending to the kids in the play. Mm -hmm. I just want there to be a question mark. Who were these people? What was that experience? What do I make of that? 
And that's, um, for me, what I want people to leave with. Well, I can say um, for myself and for the people I heard walking out that you have been very successful with that. (laughs) (laughs) So, So thank you for that experience and thank you very much for doing of this interview. Thank you. It's been, a, it's been fun. And thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway Radio podcasts, which you can find on broadwayradio.com. <laughs>